So because it's the 21st anniversary of, of 9-11, I want to ask the question and try to answer it from the scriptures, why we live in a world where things like that happen, why we live in a world of such relentless calamity and suffering and pain and death. The scripture printed in your worship folder is uh, something I'll get to eventually, but this is coming from probably 15 texts, not just one. So the first flight hit the tower, flight 11, killed 92 people in the plane. The next flight, flight 175, hit the tower a few minutes later, the other tower, and killed 65 people on the plane. And then the towers came down and 2,595 people who worked there, who were visiting there, who were trying to save people there, died. Flight 77, within an hour with 64 people, hit the Pentagon. 125 people in the Pentagon died. Noelle and I got in our car and we we drove over to the Pentagon Memorial uh, to see how they laid it out. And you've been there, 164 benches laid out in the order of the age from three years old to 71 years old. Flight 93, who knows where that was going? 45 people on board and evidently Todd Beamer and the others wrestled the control of the plane and brought it down and everybody died outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Total fatalities that day, 2,986, which may sound a little calculating, a little sterile. You could add to it this, 3,000 children lost parents that day. 1,600 people lost spouses that day. And of course, the calamity list could go on and on and on. Um, As we speak, a third of Pakistan is underwater. That's like Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River. 30 million people displaced. A thousand dead, $10 billion in damages. Sections of Ethiopia, Somalia, South Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan, all face significant starvation affecting millions and we could keep the list going indefinitely. My, the background of this message is just triggered by 9-11 but really it's based on the fact that 9-11 happens every 30 minutes and continues to happen every 30 minutes every day every year, every decade, every century, without let up, conservatively, 6,000 people die every hour. Probably closer to 7,000. 61 million people, 61 million people a year die. Five million of those are under five. Cancer kills seven million people 
every year, 600,000 in this country, right behind heart disease, which kills 700,000 every year in this country. So you breathe in, you breathe out, four people are dead, 12,000 during this service. So the question I'm, I want to answer is, why do we, we live in a world like that? Now, the word why in English is ambiguous, right? It can mean why for what cause or why for what purpose. I mean the latter mainly. I mean, the Bible's full of causal statements about this reality. But frankly, causes leave me hanging. Like, I wanted to know the point. How we got here is not of great significance to me unless it helps me get what's the purpose? Where's it going? So that's my main question. In 1995, we passed through the greatest crisis of our church that I was pastoring at the time. Nothing worse before, nothing worse since. Uh, We let two staff members go, 230 people left the church, and we didn't recover for three years. And during that time, we appointed a team of 23 people, four staff were on it, I was on it, and their job for a year and a half was to simply step back and say, what happened? Um, Who are we? What's our mission? Is there a future? And during that time, that team sent me away. And they said, you go to that little monastery over in St. Paul, and you stay there for three days, and you bring us a word from God. You bring us the mission for this church. You're not God, and you're not infallible. But you're our leader. Go listen. And we'll interact with it. And if it needs refining, we'll refine. During those three days, I believe God gave me not just a mission for the church, but a life mission statement. It hasn't changed to this day. There was one tweak of wording. But I'm mentioning this just because you need to know why I'm here. I'm here to do this. We exist. So it's on the walls of, of the three campuses of our church. We exist, and I'm saying I exist this morning to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That's my life mission statement. That's our church mission statement. And when we said, in all things, supreme in all things, we didn't mean accept terrorist attacks, except cancer, except arthritis, except babies born with profound disabilities. That's not what we meant. Nobody on that team meant that. We meant all things. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God 
in all things. That's why I'm here. I want to talk about that, the supremacy of God in all things. We embrace that. So, because he is supreme, I want to know what he's doing in this world. Why this world? If you are, and you are, supreme. Christians are complex people. The more mature, the more complex. And I mean emotionally complex, not simple. Because life is complex. The Bible is complex. If you open your eyes when you read the Bible, and you open your eyes when you walk through the world, you will conclude this is a horrible place. And this is a beautiful place. You will. You cannot not see those if you have your eyes open. You see it in the Bible, and you see it in the world. This is a horrible world, and it is a beautiful world. So this church has graciously given Noel and me six weeks of, of an apartment, which is right over there, I believe. And there's a tree outside the window of number 8, 6th Street, southeast, northeast. And it's had one orange leaf on it when we came. And now they're uncountable. And in a week or two, when I'm gone, it will be glorious. Today it's raining. On Wednesday, it'll be 65 when you wake up. Degrees, we're talking. (laughs) And you will walk out of your door in this beautiful city with its murders. And you will be a complex person because if you walk through this world with a heart to weep with those who weep and a heart to rejoice with those who rejoice, you will be complex. Because it's always worth crying about. It's always worth rejoicing about. Figure that out, complex Christian. That's our life in this world. So we're focusing on the question... Not why is there beauty. That's another sermon. But why is history a conveyor belt of corpses? Knowing that there's real beauty, there's real good in the world. If I could know why, if I could know what he's doing, why did it get to be this way and why it is going where it's going If I could know that, then I think I could know him better. I could thank him more. I could trust him more. I could love him more. I could admire him more. And I could join him in those purposes. That's my goal in this message. So, why so much pain in this world? Why so much misery? And I want to start by giving you two answers from the Bible that are wrong. Not that the Bible teaches the wrong, but people try to get them from the Bible. So, two wrong answers. Because they're so common, and some of you believe them. And I'd like to change that. And four right answers from the Bible I'd like to persuade you are true. 
Number one, wrong answer. This kind of world with its calamities and conflicts and suffering and death exists because God is not in control. He's not in control. God has surrendered control to mindless natural forces or demonic powers or ultimate human self-determination, otherwise known as free will. Some combination of those three. Millions of people believe this. It is not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. Matthew 20, uh, 10, 29. Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, what in the world was he saying? That was a first century way of looking for the most random, insignificant event in the world. A sparrow on a limb in the forest in Papua New Guinea dies. It's not random. God said, Sparrow, your time is up. The fact that he does that every second of every day by the millions is no stress on his mind. Or you don't know God. He's God. He's infinite. He can't be stressed. No matter how many sparrows there are to navigate. Matthew 8, verse 27. Even the winds, this is the disciples responding to Jesus stilling the storm. Even the winds and the sea obey him. That's amazing. In this world, in Florida, New Orleans, Bangladesh, Every time you hear of a hurricane, a monsoon, a tornado, a tsunami the day after Christmas, 2004, 240,000 people dead in one night, whole churches swept away. You got a choice. You can believe the wind and the waves obey him, or they don't. If the wind and the waves of the sea don't obey Jesus in 2004 or 2022, Capitol Hill Baptist Church should close its doors and stop playing religious games. It is not a true answer to say 240,000 people died in one night because God couldn't stop it. He saw this raging power moving through the Indian Ocean. And he controls the sea. He rules the sea. 
He could have said, just like Jesus over the Sea of Galilee, peace, be still, and it would have stopped. It would have stopped. And everybody lives. He can stop tsunamis. He does stop tsunamis. He will stop tsunamis, and he didn't stop that tsunami. Or consider Proverbs 6.33. The lot is cast in the lap, and every decision is from the Lord. Here's my paraphrase. In Las Vegas, all the dice are thrown, and God decides the numbers on the top when they stop rolling. It is not a biblical answer to the question why people win or lose in the folly of gambling. It's not a biblical answer to say it's random. It's just random. Pull the lever, it's random. It's not random. It is not random. God decides every die, every lever, or he's not God. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 27. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? He was talking about the sack of Jerusalem by the Babylonians with all of its horrors. Who has commanded and it came to pass? Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. Unless the Lord has commanded it. So God governs the world with an all-embracing, all-pervading, meticulous providence. Nothing is outside his rule. He's not whimsical. He's not reckless. He's not aimless. He's not aimless. Everything he does, he does for a reason and for a purpose. Listen to this, one of my most precious verses from Isaiah 46.10. I am God, and there is no other I am God and there is none besides me. Declaring the end from the beginning, saying, My counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He has a purpose for everything he does. That's what he does in the world, is fulfill his purposes. When you are an infinitely wise, all-knowing, infinitely powerful God, to use the word permit for what you do is to say and mean permit by plan. Permit by design. Because you know everything leading up to an event that you see coming. You know everything flowing from it ahead of time. And if that event is something you reject and do not will to happen, you just stop it. Everything God permits, he permits by design, by plan. The permission of the all-knowing, all-wise God is a permission according to his purpose. So answer number one is wrong. This kind of world exists because God is not in control. It's wrong. Answer number two, that's wrong. 
This kind of world exists because God is evil and unjust, a malevolent deity over the universe. That's a terrifying prospect. First John 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There are no dark corners in God's mind. So I'm an old man. And the Psalms have some things to say to old men. And this church is amazingly young, praise God. So I have something to say to you young folks. Anybody younger than, say, 70. (laughs) And we can include the handful of us that are older. So this is God's word to you from an old man, according to Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar of Lebanon. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Now, why would that be? I'm here, right? This is sap. (laughs) Gracious, God-given, happy sap flowing. I love the Word of God. Thank you for this privilege. Why? So why does he do that? Verse 15, to declare to all these young people that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. That's not a right answer. That he's unjust. He's unrighteous. He's evil. That's a wrong answer. So hear it from an old man, but mainly hear it from the Bible. That's not an answer you should go with. It's not true. The Lord is upright, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So, let's turn to the, to the four true answers. Now, these build on each other. Together, they form a, a whole, a worldview that's pretty radical, given the world we live in. Some of these, some of you have never heard before, but being a part of this church, probably most of you have. Um, You know, and you're saying to yourself, he has bitten off the hardest problem in the world, and he only has a few minutes to deal with it. He's crazy. So, Just know that I'm aware that I will not tie up or weave all the loose ends of every question into a fabric of perfect and complete understanding. The hidden things belong to the Lord. Now we see through a glass darkly. Okay, no pretense here of having solved every problem. But you know, when you go to the Bible, it says true things. It doesn't finish everything. I mean, we still remain finite. But it says true things by which we can live. 
get ballast in our boat. So if it feels heavy, which it will, if it feels heavy, think this way, at least it's the way I handle heavy. I'm a little boat, and there's the really big waves in this world, and I need ballast in my boat. And I, I just bear witness after 50 years, that's the way truth works. That's the way weighty truth works. You, if you don't have weighty truth down in your boat, so you're drawing water, and the wind is blowing, but it's not knocking you over, it's because there's truth down there. All right? Number one, this kind of world, with all of its misery, all of its pain, its death, exists because God planned a history of redemption before the world existed. God planned a history of, underline the word, redemption from something before the world existed. And then, according to that plan of redemption, he permitted sin and death and misery to enter the world to set the stage for that redemption. Listen to 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Purpose and grace, undeserved favor, ill-deserved favor given to us before he created the universe. That's what the text says. Blood-bought grace. It's in Christ Jesus. He gave us this grace in Christ Jesus before he created the world. Blood-bought grace before he created blood. He meant, therefore, to have a world in which this would happen, could happen. And therefore, he ordained that sin exist. One of the sentences that is perhaps hardest for people to grasp is, it is no sin in God that God wills that sin be. Take that one home and see whether or not that sentence, it is not a sin in God for him to will that sin exist. Without that sentence, it is scarcely possible to make sense out of the Bible. So, the first answer is that here we are in the 21st century receiving 
grace upon grace upon grace in the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. And this text, 2 Timothy 1, 9, tells us that grace is coming to us because God gave it to us in Christ Jesus before he made the world. Therefore, the world in which that can happen was part of the plan. Number two. This kind of world exists because God subjected the natural world to futility in hope. He subjected the natural world to futility in hope. That comes from our text printed in the bulletin, which I'll read in just a moment. So God put the natural world under a curse. You read about that in Genesis 3, right? Satan is cursed. The woman bears her part of the curse. The man bears his part of the curse. This world came crashing down in Genesis 3. And God did it. In other words, natural evil, the physical horrors of the world are, and I'll try to explain this in just a minute, are a parable or a picture of the horrors of moral evil. Natural evil, physical suffering, exists as a signpost or a parable of the horrors of moral evil. Physical suffering exists to show the outrageousness of sin against God. Let me step back. It is worth asking. So ask yourself right now. It is worth asking why God makes physical suffering the consequence of moral evil. The essence of sin is not physical. It's not the movement of muscles. It's not the touching of flesh. The essence of sin is this. In the heart of Adam and Eve, before they did anything with their hands or their mouths, they said inside, in their hearts, I don't trust you anymore to provide the best life for us. I think I know what's best for me now. And I reject your kind of limiting love. I don't like it. I reject you. I vote for me. And I will decide from now on right and wrong. That's the beginning and the essence of sin. No muscles moved yet. It was a moral blow to the face of the infinitely holy God. And as such, it merited thousands and thousands of years of horrible physical misery. It wasn't Adam, it wasn't Satan who subjected the world to futility in hope. That's the key phrase. Because if that little phrase weren't there, you might think, oh, it was Adam who subjected the world to futility. Or it was Satan who subjected the world to futility. But that little word, 
He subjected the world to futility in hope can only be God. So here's the text. Verse 18 of Romans 8. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Hasten the day, O God. That's coming. When Adam and Eve sinned morally in their hearts, smacked God across the face and voted for themselves as supreme, God touched physical reality with the curse. Why? One reason is because sin, by its very nature, blinds us to the seriousness of sin. Sin does not see the infinite outrage of slapping an infinite holiness in the face. It's just no big deal. Sin can't feel outrage at sin. That's its nature. What can it feel? Broken bones, cancer, loss, death. That's what sin can feel. The message just might get through about the seriousness of what has just happened. People don't lie awake at night. I mean, ask all the relations you have. People don't lie awake at night wrestling with the outrage of their indifference to God. Name one. I mean, if there is one, praise God, he or she is probably on the brink of salvation. (laughs) But 99.9% of the people in this city do not lie awake at night fretting about the outrage of their indifference to Almighty God. But you touch their bodies. You touch their bodies and they will rage. Pain is the siren, the trumpet of the outrage of the evil of sin. Now, clarification, crucial clarification. I am not saying that every pain in a person corresponds to a specific sin in that person. That's not true. Jesus was asked, who sinned, right? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered like this. It was not that his, this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Physical suffering is a global trumpet blast of the outrage of the moral evil of sin against God. And some of those who suffer, you know them, some of those who suffer most 
are the most godly people. So last Monday night in Nashville at the Sing Conference, Johnny Erickson Tata is always there. They love Johnny. Who doesn't love Johnny? You have to be a demon not to love Johnny. (laughs) And she said last Monday night from the stage to 6,000 people, now you know Johnny Erickson Tata has been a paraplegic for 55 years from the age of 17 to today. She's 72. She'll turn 73 this year. And she's been in that wheelchair, barely able to do anything, and now increasingly suffers from unremitting pain. Pray for Johnny. And here's what she said. I'm not going to cash in my IRA and retire and move to Florida and play pickleball. And you better not either. I'm going to squeeze every ounce out of this body for kingdom work that I can. How can you not love Johnny? That's my kind of woman. Or man. I want to be that. In other words... Her suffering, her 55 years of unremitting suffering is not owing to her sin. Her sins are forgiven. They're under the blood. So are yours. No suffering of any Christian is punishment. Period. None. It has another design. Another purpose. Punishment is over for the Christian. So answer number two is that God has subjected the world to futility in hope. And this futility is the collapse of the world into physical suffering as a trumpet of the outrage of moral evil of sin. Number three, the third reason for why this world exists, so that today followers of Jesus would be able to express and display the profound God-honoring reality that Christ is more precious than anything they lose. That's a long sentence, sorry. Um, See if I can say it. I don't know if I can say it more simply. In order that through loss, Christians have a chance by not grumbling and not complaining and not being angry at God, but rather trusting and resting. This sentence is getting long. (laughs) It's not helping. (laughs) By trusting, they might show Jesus is more valuable than what I just lost. I don't know if that's clear yet or not. A world of suffering and loss exists so that I, by not murmuring, might show that Jesus is more to be desired, more satisfying than what I just lost. Psalm 63.3, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. What an amazing statement. 
Psalm 63, verse 3, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than being kept alive. That's a life-changing verse, folks. You believe that? Are you sick? Are you, are, do you have cancer? You do. Some of you do, and you don't know it. You don't know it yet. In a room this size, that's going to be true. You'll find out within a week or a month or six months that on this morning you had cancer. And I'm saying that when you get that news, say this, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life, honey. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 is the way Paul put it. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So the point of all Christian loss, loss of health, loss of job, loss of spouse, loss of child, the point of all loss is to give us an opportunity in the most graphic, powerful way for the world to see Jesus is more precious than what we just lost. Noelle and I, um, she's sitting right over here, were married in December of 1968. Here's math, 54 years. And she was 20, I was 22. We were coming into a rich understanding of the preciousness, the worth, the beauty, the power, the excellency, the greatness of God in the midst of carnage. 58,000 of my contemporaries died in Vietnam. I knew so many of them. I went to school with them. 58,000. That's the context in which you get married and choose a text for your wedding. What would you choose? Here's what we chose. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 was our wedding text. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Now that's a pretty bleak view of marriage. Yet, this is verse 18, yet, in spite of that imminent starvation, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation when there is nothing on the farm but the prospect of death. That's an amazing statement. It's in the Old Testament. Mark said, we said this morning, are you without hope this morning? Start reading the Old Testament. I want to go like, what? <laughs> that works. <laughs> the, 
That text served us really well. Still does. In the face of famine of any kind, God is better. He's enough. Not that we've lived up to this. Any crazy notions about the Piper marriage. Not, not that we've lived up to this perfectly. But what a vision to keep before your eyes. When all around my soul gives way, he then, finish it, is all my hope and stay. I mean, this, this church knows hymns. Finally, number four, and we'll wrap it up. So reason number four for why there is a world like this one. So that the greatest act of love in the history of the world could happen. That is, so that Christ could suffer and die. This is a reason for suffering and death that the world knows nothing about, except that I'm telling them right now. And if you are the world here, we're so glad that you're here. Mark emphasizes that every Sunday. I admire it so much that if you're an unbeliever here, we're not presuming anything except that you would listen and ponder and weigh and think and talk to us. So the world doesn't know this reason. This world exists with its pain and sorrow and death to make it possible for Jesus to experience pain and sorrow and death. If this world didn't exist, Jesus would have no place to suffer and die. If there were no suffering, Jesus couldn't suffer. If there were no death, Jesus couldn't die. Or to put it another way, terror exists so that Jesus could be terrorized. Trouble exists so that Jesus could be troubled in Gethsemane. Pain exists so that Jesus could feel pain. Death exists so that Christ could die. Here's a text to think about. Revelation chapter 13 Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. That verse says that there's a book that existed before the creation of the world. You can say it's symbolic. That's fine. Probably was. It definitely was. (laughs) If it's before creation, there's no paper or parchment. (laughs) So there's this book before the creation of the world And the book has in it the names of redeemed people who will be kept from worshiping the beast. And there's a name of the book. The book has a name. This is Revelation 13, 8. The name of the book that existed before the creation of the world is the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's the name of the book before the creation of the world. The book of life of the lamb who was slain. Slain is a a nice sounding word for slaughter. What you do to sheep. Slaughter. The slaughter 
of the incarnate second person of the Trinity was planned before the creation of the world. Why? Why would that be the center of the plan? Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I have a question for you. Do you believe that there would be a better way to do that? It's got to be a better way. Better way to show the love of God than that. And if you do, I don't believe in luck, but I'm going to say good luck. <laughs> You'd be striving against the Almighty. This was the plan. He's not stupid. He doesn't choose plan B before the foundation of the world. This is plan A. I want to make my love supremely known. How might I do that? I will create a world in which my son will enter the world and he will bear the curse and the pain and the suffering and the sin and the death of the world. That's what it says. You're all familiar. No, you're not all familiar, but many of you are familiar with Acts 4, 27 and 28. Truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, who mocked Jesus, Pilate, who saved his own political skin and sentenced him, the Gentile soldiers who drove the nails, the Jewish mob who cried, crucify him, crucify him, all four of those sinful people and sinful acts, it says, were predestined to take place. That means before the foundation of the world, here's how it's going to happen, son. Son. Sometimes called the covenant of redemption. Where the Father and the Son say, all right, that's what we'll do. We will make the love of God known that way. Here's the world we need. So, this is central to the reason for all existence. The Son of God bearing the sufferings of the world to lift our sin to bring us into everlasting joy, exquisite joy, in a new heavens and a new earth, glorifying God for his power and wisdom and, and love and grace. So I'm inviting you this morning, as we close, to believe this, to put this ballast in your boat, to be made strong by this. You know, don't you, that at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, by the flick of his finger, half the buildings in Washington, D.C. could fall flat and 100,000 people would be dead. And God would have done us no wrong. He owes us nothing. I'm inviting you to have a vision of, 
of God, Christ, sin, suffering, redemption, cross, heaven, hell, that is a kind of ballast in your boat. So when that happens to you, and it will, because frankly, it would be easy for many of you to handle 100,000 people dead in Washington than for your own child to die. It's going to happen. And I would like you to be ready. I would like you to be strong in those days, unwavering in your zeal for the glory of God. So, Christ has come into the world, and I want you to embrace him, believe him, trust him, treasure him. He came and he shared our suffering. He bore our pain. He tasted every test, every temptation that we have. He takes away our sin. He provides eternal life, an everlasting destiny where the curse is lifted. Perhaps this would be the last word from Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. And mourning and crying and pain will be gone for the former things have passed away. Pray. Father, I pray that we here would believe this, not just affirm it in our heads, but embrace it, that you would save us in this hour, that you would put ballast in the truth of our boats, that you would preserve us, that you would cause us to rejoice in sorrow, and that you would magnify the superior worth of Jesus over every loss that we face. In his name I pray. Amen.